nothing like this has ever happened in Montgomery County. Uh, this is a very safe community. Uh, our homicide rate just increased by 25% in one day. We feel like we probably have a skilled shooter uh, and, and that does heighten our concern. That's the voice of Charles Moose, Montgomery County, Maryland police chief, roughly 16 hours into what would go on to be characterized as 23 days of terror along the east coast of the United States in October 2002. He was thrust into the national spotlight when two snipers began shooting people from long distances and at random, leaving few clues for local law enforcement and the public to find. Once the story went national, however, that's when calls began to come in from different parts of the country that led to their eventual capture. This is the case of the D.C. Snipers. I'm Andy. I'm Emily. And this is Unnatural. Shall we get started? It's 2002, and the U.S. also, keep in mind, was only one year removed from the 9-11 attacks. So I remember that vividly. Yeah, I mean, it was still on everybody's mind at that point. Everybody was on high alert. Their guards were up, especially around the D.C. area, where the Pentagon, remember, was attacked, and another plane was trying to make its way to the Capitol building before it crash-landed on 9-11. Yeah. So Washington, D.C. has always kind of had a bad reputation for crime, or at least for the last few decades. But Which Mon- is weird. You'd think. The capital it- of the U.S., yeah. <laughs> Montgomery County, though, is just a few miles north of D.C., and it's kind of a suburban area, and it's always been viewed as a quiet and safe community at least until the killings began, that is. There's always got to be one guy that ruins <laughs> the nice, quiet, suburban life. Right. Everything's going great until this one guy shows up. So on October 2nd, James Martin was grabbing a cart at a local grocery store parking lot when a single shot rang out. It was only one shot, but it was clear enough to alert a nearby woman who ducked behind her vehicle and called 911 as James laid motionless in the parking lot. Now, luckily, a police officer just happened to be in the immediate area when this went down, Mm -hmm. and he rushed to the injured man to provide what kind of medical attention he could before an ambulance would arrive. But he was also kind of scouring the area, to see if he noticed anything suspicious, as an officer would tend to do in that situation. Right. Like, where's a shooter? Did he see somebody? Did he see anything? Right. Or to see maybe if a vehicle was speeding away from the scene, something like that. Well, sadly, James Martin died a few minutes later, and no suspects were even cited. 
But one thing was clear. He had been killed by a shot from a high-powered sniper rifle, which was obviously very unusual, and it kind of incited alarm immediately from local law enforcement. Yeah, well, who was he? Did he, like, was he the actual target? Was it random? That's what we're going to find out. So early the next morning, around 7.41 a.m., a guy was mowing his lawn and suddenly dropped No shot was heard, probably because of the noise from the lawnmower, I'm guessing. Uh, But witnesses did call 911, and that's because initially it was believed that one of the blades from the lawnmower actually hit him, causing the injury. But once EMTs arrived, it was quickly determined that he had suffered a gunshot wound, which killed him almost instantly. Where did he get shot? In the head? In the neck? In the chest? This this was in the abdomen area. But that was just really the beginning of one of the bloodiest days in Montgomery County's history. And a day that no one who lived in that area will ever forget. The shooting started yesterday at 5.20 p.m. A bullet went through a window of this store, narrowly missing a clerk inside. It was the only miss. At 6.04 p.m., a middle-aged white man was killed outside of the supermarket. This morning, the murders resumed. At 7.41 a.m., another white man mowing his lawn. At 8.12 a.m., an Indian man gassing up his cab. Minutes later, at 8.37, an Hispanic woman sitting reading a book on a bench outside of a restaurant. Just over an hour later, at 9.58 a.m., another single bullet, another victim a woman cleaning her car at a gas station. Altogether, six shots, five apparently random victims within 16 hours. Police have had little to go on, only one witness's description of two people in a white truck speeding away from one murder scene. Police are stopping white trucks and vans, but have not found any suspects. That's a clip from that evening's ABC World News Tonight broadcast. So most of the Washington, D.C. area is in lockdown at this point. One of the largest manhunts in U.S. history is underway, and really no one has seen much yet. Except as you heard in the clip, Emily, news began to trickle out about a white paneled van that was speeding away from the scene after one of the murders. Yeah, imagine just being your your regular old Joe down the street and you have one of those vans and now everybody's looking at you like, "Mm, I don't know, you know, he has been acting kind of shifty. Pretty sus, right? Pretty freaking sus. So it's important to kind of keep in mind that these were all in Montgomery County, Maryland, within about 15 miles of each other. So... Bam, 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 bam. All of these murders took place within 15 miles on the same day. Hmm. However, later that night, the killers struck inside Washington, D.C., inside the city limits for the first time. Right now, experts kind of believe that it could be two snipers working together. That was their thinking because they were actually working with snipers from the military and the police departments that were giving them intelligence on this. And what they knew for sure was that the snipers were using public places to their advantage. So all of the killings had occurred right off the freeway. 
and at gas stations, shopping mall parking lots, bus stops, those kind of places, right? And the police were devising roadblocks, kind of searching every white-paneled van that they can find, just like you mentioned. Like, if you had a white van, you were screwed. Yeah. I would not be driving that. Like, if I had one of those vehicles, I would I'll walk. I would be painting mine like the uh, magical mystery machine or something like that from Scooby-Doo. The Wienermobile? Or the Wienermobile, yeah. Sure, one of those two. Dressed like Shaggy or something. <laughs> anyway, they were still no closer to catching the killers, really, at this point. So, not to mention... Well, did they fix... Yeah. Oh, did did they figure that all the victims were random? Was there any sort of yes. pattern? So, and that's the other thing. If you listen to that audio, they talk about white victims, black victims, Hispanic victims, Indian victims. So, well, what if they were like like hired assassins assassinating specific people? Well, at this point, these were regular people. That were being gunned down. And obviously the law enforcement were doing their due diligence, but it was pretty clear right away that these killings were random and there was no actual target. They were just looking for whoever they could find at the most opportune time, which is probably one of the most scariest situations you can think of because you don't know who you're trying to find at that point. Yeah. Yeah. You're not even a hundred. You're not even a hundred percent sure that it's someone in a white van. That's what you got from the information initially, but who knows if that's true? So, not to mention the killings kept going on here, and now they were stretching into neighboring Virginia. So, the next victim, forty-three-year-old Caroline, was shot in the chest as she was on her way to an arts and craft store, actually a Michaels in Fredericksburg. No. And miraculously, she actually became the first survivor of the snipers. Good for her. Yeah. Three days later, another shooting occurred. This time it was back in Maryland again. And for the first time, sadly, this one was at a school. Oh, no. Hi everyone, this is Cassie and Wine and True Crime has transformed into True Crime Trophy. I'm bringing you cases straight out the True Crime Trophy cabinet and I need you to help me sort them into gold, silver or bronze. Get in touch with us on our social media and rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you on the next episode. Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's absolutely free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. So Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a whole lot more. Basically, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah. And you want to know what else? You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, which is really cool. It's everything you need to make a podcast. 
all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So, 13-year-old Iron Brown had been kicked off his school bus, so his aunt actually dropped him off on her way to work. His aunt. Oh, yeah, you're Minnesotan, I forgot. So, the reason he was kicked off is supposedly he was eating candy on his school bus, which... What? If that had been the rule on my school bus when I was a kid, I would have been kicked off about 40 times. I don't know about you. Same. But it was about an hour before the school was about to open, so he had some time to kill. So he was going to be waiting outdoors for a while. But almost as soon as she starts driving away after she drops him off, she has the radio on. And of course, in the local media market, that's all any of the radio stations are talking about is these DC sniper murderers. Man, at this point, I wouldn't even go outside. Yeah, a lot of people weren't. And she hears a gunshot. No. And she looks in her rearview mirror and she sees her nephew lying on the ground bleeding. Oh, my God. So, of course, she rushes back to him, brings him back to the car, and she calls the hospital to let them know what's going on. And, oh, by the way, as luck would have it, his aunt or aunt, as you would say, is a nurse. Good. Thankfully, right? So despite his injuries to multiple vital organs, Irene survived. And after searching the area around the school afterwards, the police got their first big clue. Oh, what was it? So not only did they find the first shell casings from the rifle, which is now believed was a Bushmaster, which is a military-style rifle. They also found a mysterious tarot card. A tarot card? Yeah, and it had writing on the back of it. Are you ready for this? Where did they find it? They found it near the school. So the killer knew that, obviously, that they would comb the area Mm -hmm. for clues and left this tarot card. Now, are you ready for what it says? Uh, Yeah. Here's what it says. For you, Mr. Police, call me God. Do not release this to the press. Oh, go fuck yourself. Call me God? Mm -hmm. Shut up. So Who the hell? Yeah. Obviously, you think you're God, but... Who do you actually think you are? Yeah, well, obviously, it's somebody who's pretty fucking deranged at this point. And after Irene's shooting, a $200,000 reward was offered for information on the snipers. And a hotline was set up. And get this, Emily, 100,000 calls came in from all over the United States. So this one hotline was inundated with 100,000 calls. Which is a good thing, but at the same time, it's a very bad thing because that means a lot of calls can kind of get lost 
And even if they're in... Yeah, we talked about that last week. Yeah. With, um, Cherry's story that the one gal had called in and she she called in a tip and she never got a call back. And you might see this again, especially with a case this high profile, because at this time, it had gone national. I mean, everybody was watching this case. I remember vividly watching this case from my home in Iowa, and the killings persisted. One late at night... A guy who was at a gas station, he was a Vietnam veteran. He was driving from Virginia to Maryland, and he was sadly shot and killed in the head. And another guy, a few days later, was shot dead in a different gas station in Spotsylvania County in Virginia. Now, three days after that, a 47-year-old FBI agent named Linda Franklin was shot dead at a Home Depot parking lot in Fairfax County in Virginia. So you can probably imagine what people are feeling at this point. I mean, so many killings, so many shootings. Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe that all of these people were random. Like, you feel like there would have to be someone who was a target for something. Right. And I think the FBI and the local police departments in these jurisdictions were looking into that. But again, there were no dots to connect. These were all random, which meant that it was that much harder to try and find these killers. And And that much more terrifying just to be someone out walking around. Because you know that it could be anybody. It could be you. Um, Anyone, anywhere, anytime. No, thank you. Right now... You know, at this point, gas stations in the area began putting up tarps to kind of try to make people feel safer while they were pumping gas so they wouldn't, you know, be the victims of a sniper attack. And while people were walking during daylight hours, many of them would actually kind of bob and weave around so they wouldn't be targeted. I mean, that's the fear that this caused. And because they thought in their mind that it would actually be more difficult to hit them, which makes sense. Everybody was really on edge. And remember, we're still kind of in that 9-11 mindset. It's only a year after 9-11. I mean, it's 2021. Mm-hmm. We don't have a sniper at random problem. And I am still just like walking down the street in my small ass town I am just, I'm hyper aware of everyone and everything going on around me. Like, I cannot imagine the anxiety that these people were feeling being in that area with what's going on. Like, I'm, like, this This is nearly 20 years ago. Yeah. And I'm feeling, like, secondhand anxiety. Like, now I don't want to go outside because... What if there's a sniper? What if what if yeah. there's a copycat out there? I no, I don't like I don't like this at all. And remember, this is pre-social media. So information while it was 24 hours at this point, you know, you had the 24-hour news networks and stuff. It wasn't as instantaneous. So the Washington Post during this time of chaos came out with a headline on its front page of its newspaper. And here's what it read. Snipers? Al-Qaeda? Yeah. So that's going to make people panic even more because, remember, 
Al Qaeda was the terrorist organization that was behind 9-11 with Osama bin remember. Laden. Was, was, you remember when the big anthrax thing happened? Was that? Yes. And that happened. Yeah. Five people died in the Washington, D.C. area right before this. So people were on edge. They were scared. And they thought that this was a terrorist plot. And actually, even President George W. Bush weighed in on the matter. First of all, it is a form of terrorism. But in terms of the terrorism that we think of, we have no evidence one way or the other, obviously. But anytime anybody is randomly shooting, randomly killing, randomly taking life, it's a, it's a, it's cold-blooded murder. And it's, a, you know, it's a sick mind. It's obviously loves terrorizing society. On October 19th, a 37-year-old man was shot near a steakhouse in Virginia. Now, luckily, the man survived, and authorities also found a note from the killers at the scene. So this is the second note that they've sent here. And in short... And they didn't find any at any of the other scenes, or were... Could there have Other been? than the tarot card? Yeah. No, no. Other than the tarot card, this was the only other notes that was found. So here's what it said. In short, the note actually demanded $10 million and safe passage out of the country, which surprised me. $10 million. I I wasn't expecting these guys to be asking for money at this point. And essentially like an extradition? Yeah. So it also... It also threatened that more children would be shot if their demands weren't met. Exactly. Fuck you. So around this time. You're going to threaten children? Exactly. Yeah, because they knew. Because remember, (laughs) they were watching the same TV that everybody else was watching. So they saw that it struck a chord when they shot that kid. And even though, thankfully, the kid survived, they knew that that might be their best play at getting this money. Do you think it upset them that two people now have survived? I think so. I think so. And remember, they were working together, so who knows what one of them was saying to the other in terms of, hey, you shouldn't have let this person live, make sure to give it a headshot or something. But I I got to imagine they wanted to kill as many people as possible. Now, it was around this time that the first big tip came in from that hotline that the FBI had set up, and they received a call from a guy by the name of Robert Holmes, and he was a mechanic in Tacoma, Washington. Now, he had been buddies with a guy by the name of John Williams in the Army in the mid-1980s, and John would eventually... Mm -hmm become John Mohammed, and he married a woman named Mildred with whom he had three children after he converted to Islam. Robert said that after the first Persian Gulf War, which was in the early 1990s, John came home and he was definitely a different guy. Some Mm -hmm. have suggested that he suffered from what experts call Gulf War Syndrome. And that's where some soldiers who were exposed to certain chemicals overseas, it kind of affected them neurologically down the road. Oh, weird. 
So I thought, yeah, it was a big thing back in the early nineties. I guess I didn't, I didn't know that. I thought like I've heard golf, golf war syndrome, but I thought it was just like a variant of PTSD. Well, I think there were a, a multitude of things. Uh, yeah. that were associated with Gulf War Syndrome, but that's one of them. And Robert mentioned that he that John owned a long-range rifle as well, so that's a red flag, obviously. Yeah, because did they ever, did, like, do they know how far away the shooters were from their victims? No. They knew that the shooters were not on rooftops. They determined that mm-hmm. based on their own experts that were snipers themselves. Okay. And they figured that the shooters were shooting from a vehicle. Oh. So, but they also knew that it was definitely a long-range rifle. Yeah. And Robert also mentioned that John was estranged from his wife, and his wife had taken their kids to the Washington, D.C. area. So John had actually met 17-year-old Lee Boyd Malvo while working in Jamaica, and the two quickly developed a bond. Malvo came from a very abusive home. It's said that his mother was extremely abusive to him, and she was also largely absent from the home, and his, fa- and his father had basically disappeared. So he was looking for a father figure. Remember, he's still a teenager Yeah, and how at this is, point. Um... Yeah, John Mohammed is 41 at this time. And around the time of Robert Holmes' call to the police, they also received calls from John Mohammed and Lee Malvo. Although, as you mentioned before, with the case from last week, a number of these calls were unfortunately kind of lost in the shuffle. Wait, 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 wait. So they called in tips about their own crimes? Yes, they called in tips. And again, you want to know what these two dudes sound like? So John Muhammad said in these calls, call me God and do not release this to the press. And you know what? You know what this guy sounds like? He sounds like a giant staphylococcus infection. He definitely might have some sort of infection. That's for sure. Get out. But, you just sound like a nuisance. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Shut one. up. But the, the frustrating thing is they were trying to get through to the authorities to communicate with them. And obviously the local authorities wanted that to happen because. Well, why did they call the tip line and not like exactly the police station itself? They should have. Or. But yeah. the killers were so desperate. They were so desperate for police to recognize them that they eventually let them in on another shooting that hadn't even been tied to them until this moment. Now, that shooting took place in Montgomery, Alabama. And if you know your geography... Sweet home, Alabama. Exactly. Not only is it a great song from Leonard Skinner, but Alabama is also a long ways away from Washington, D.C. Yeah. And this occurred about two weeks before the D.C. attacks had begun. And at this time, law enforcement kind of thought it was a red herring. Mm -hmm. But once the dust settled, it was confirmed to be the work of Mohammed and Malvo. Well, I can see where they kind of didn't really 
connect it because a Alabama is super far away and b like all of the other shootings were like in the same general right. area. And remember they're getting a bunch of bullshit calls too from people you yeah. know how people are. They're just mm-hmm. making phone calls and making accusations to things that don't even exist. It's that weird thing where like you just like you want to be a part right. of it. Right. Exactly. And that's what was happening. Remember 100,000 calls were coming in. So Yeah, but I will admit, you know, I'm kind of guilty of, you know, you watch unsolved mysteries yeah. and they show, you know, the sketch at the end mm-hmm. or whatever and I'm like, "Oh, like looks does a little that look sus. Like somebody I know? Does yeah. that look like does that look like my creepy ass neighbor down the street? It could be. Does that look like my podcast co-host? Could be. You know what? Now that you mention it. <laughs> now that you mention it. Moving on. So This is <laughs> Just when authorities were closing in, another shooting took place. Now yeah. this one was a bus driver. Damn motherfuckers. Yeah, it was in Montgomery County again. And he was killed on October 22nd. Now, thankfully, he would be the last victim of the D.C. snipers. Get wrecked. They're about to get wrecked. So remember how early in the case the police were given leads that said the killers were in a white paneled van? Well, guess what? Was that correct? It wasn't correct. It wasn't. It wasn't a a white van at all. So all this time, all these weeks, they had been searching for a white van, and the killers never had a white van. It was a blue. Damn, Daniel, back at it again with the white van. It was a blue Chevy Caprice. So long story short, officers obtained DNA from one of the last crime scenes, and they linked it to Malvo. How? Who they then linked, well... Because it was on a plastic bag that they had left at the scene. But how do they link it to him? And they they got his was DNA he in the off. Was system of for it. something else? And yeah, his fingerprint was on there from when he came to the United States. Oh, okay. So remember, he was from Jamaica. So once the officers obtained the DNA from Malvo, they then linked it to John Mohammed, who had actually brought Malvo to the United States along with his mother from Jamaica a few years before. Was it like a 90-day fiancé type thing? or? Well, it's funny because now that you mention it, once they got to the United States, Mohammed was actually in a custody battle with Malvo's mother to try and gain custody over him. Because how, how old that is was he still, again? He's 17. Yeah. So he's not an adult at this point, but once they realized that they had Mohammed as a suspect, they found a registration of his that linked him to a blue Chevy Caprice, which they found parked at a rest stop the following evening. And get this, Mohammed and Malvo were found Sleeping inside. How do you sleep after that? How do you right. sleep? Oh, we're going to. Well, I imagine they were just on to their next killing. And yeah, they... but like, how do you do that? Because oh, I think oh, that they, we're, we're... they they thought 
that everybody was looking for a white van. So they thought they were safe. That is insane. They thought they were in the clear. But they're calling in. Because they had been in the clear for a number See, of weeks. and you hear. Up until now. You know, you hear um, like criminal psychologists or, uh, you know, whatever the proper term is, talk about, you know, that people get away with so many killings that they get sloppy or they want to be caught. Now, how many, remind me, how many, how many shootings did they do before they started calling in their own tips? Yeah, it was over 10. Yeah. So, I mean, did, did, did they want the attention because nobody was finding them or did they actually want to be caught and stopped? I feel like it's a really fine line between yeah, between like I want that attention and I want to be stopped. And remember, this case was national. Yeah. Hundreds of millions of Americans were glued to their TVs every night. And I think they got off on that. I really do. Do you think, think they took a they took a maybe they were um, you know, taking a page out of the Zodiac's killer? Maybe handbook that they were just going to drop all these clues and never get caught. It it could have been another one of those things, but I think they just got off on that. I think it it was partially the fame because Mm -hmm. you know how ego is their ego, their ego just kept uh, getting larger and larger and kept eating at them. And they wanted more and more after this. And that's why they demanded the $10 million in my opinion. And this is just my opinion. I don't think that they were initially going to go after $10 million from the U S government. I think that that came later once this thing just blew. So, you know, big out of proportion, that that's what they asked for. Well, because they asked for the ten million and threatened children in the same time, right? right. In the yeah. same note. Yeah. So they were like, "Well, shoot, we, you know, we might as well get some money out of it." And the best way to do that is by threatening kids because yeah. nobody wants kids to get hurt. And let's get out of the country while we're at it. Yeah. The two were arrested, and both actually were eventually convicted, as they should be. Obviously, after killing so many people and causing so much havoc throughout the eastern seaboard here, Lee Malvo, believe it or not. So yeah. wait, are they are they considered spree killers or serial killers? Uh, every, everything that I've read says serial killers. However, it could be argued. They're kind of both. both. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. But um, either way. Madmen. I mean, just crazy, Gross. crazy individuals. And Lee Malvo, after about four years of convincing, he eventually testified at John Mohammed's trial. Now, Lee Malvo said that Mohammed actually instigated him in many of these attacks, and he actually gave a lengthy interview with the Washington Post back in 2012. Yeah, so was he, like, brainwashed by... Well, this is what he said. Okay. He said, quote, I was a monster. If you look up the definition, that's what a monster is. I was a ghoul. I was a thief. I stole people's lives. I did someone else's biddings just because they said so. There is no rhyme or reason... 
and it makes no sense. In an interview with Matt Lauer on the Today Show in 2012, he said that Mohammed had actually sexually abused him as well. So these allegations... And he had a history of abuse. He had a history of abuse, too. He did. Yeah. From his family members, too. So this is just another instance for him. And remember, he saw Mohammed as a father figure. But Mohammed was convicted and executed in 2009. Malvo is... Electric chair? He was actually given uh, the uh, lethal injection. Bring back the electric chair. It seems more painful. Yeah. Some people even say it's more humanitarian, actually, than lethal injection. Really? But... Why? Yeah, some people argue that way. Yeah, they say lethal injection is actually worse. Don't they, like, put you under, but don't they, like, knock you out, essentially, with the lethal injection and then do the stuff that stops your heart? Yeah, but there's there's some people that argue that it actually is cruel and, and unusual punishment for people. Um, and actually, but the electric chair isn't. There's a few states that are considering bringing back the firing squad, but that's... An issue for another podcast. Neither here nor there. Right. So Malvo is currently serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole in Virginia. He's actually reached out to a few of the victims over the years and actually apologized to their families, believe it or not. And good for him. Get this. Last year in 2020, he got married. What? To who? Yeah. I don't know. I couldn't figure out who it was that he got married to. I looked into it, but it did say in the state of Virginia that he was married. So do they allow conjugal visits? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I do know that somebody had been corresponding with him back and forth over the years. God, that's so weird. It is weird, but it happens with some of these serial killers. And he is married as of last year. And... In also, a pandemic of all right. times. Yeah, too. I can't imagine there's a whole lot of conjugal visits during the pandemic. Yeah, in 2013, there was actually a motion picture released based on the killings titled Blue Caprice. So thus concludes the case of the D.C. sniper attacks. That's a wrap. What do we got on socials? For socials, tweet at us on Twitter, Unnatural the Pod. Find us on Instagram where we find us on Instagram where we post uh, pictures, videos, all that kind of fun stuff about each episode and some behind the scenes content every once in a while. Um, Unnatural the Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Unnatural a True Crime Podcast. You can email us, Unnatural the Podcast at gmail.com. And also, please consider signing up for our Patreon page. You'll get early access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, and more. You can also decide um, any amount you'd like to donate. We do research, produce this podcast ourselves, so any contribution helps us offset the um, offset the cost of making this podcast for you guys, and we do really appreciate it. Um, you can find us there at patreon.com slash unnatural the pod. And as always, be sure to rate, subscribe, follow, and share us with your friends. Now, speaking of friends, do we have a Friendster account? You know what? That 
that came out in 2002. I realized that when I was looking for MySpace. No, we do not have that. And if you bring up one more dead social okay. media, how many dead social, how long are we going to be able to keep this up, bringing up dead social accounts at the end of episodes, Andy? I've got a few more. I've got a few more that uh, I'm waiting for that I'll, I'll mention before the season's end. I'm excited. I am, I am 100% down with Hot or Not, <laughs> by the way. Don't, I can't wait. A spoiler alert. Come on. Now I got to think of another wait. one. We'll oh. talk to you next week. <laughs> All right, guys. See you next week. She was on her way to an arts and craft store, actually a Michael's in Fredericksburg. No. And miraculously, she actually became the first survivor of the snipers. Good for her. Yeah. She It was that Michael's energy. Like she needed to go to Michael's and god damn it, not even a gunshot wound was gonna stop her. Well, unfortunately I didn't let you know this, but one of the victims before that actually perished was at a Michael's as well. Don't lie. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Never mind. So there goes that theory. Hi, I'm Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold. If you are unfamiliar with my other podcast, I often cover stories from the television show Unsolved Mysteries. For the past five years, you've heard me talk about these cases on my own, but now's your chance to hear me have in-depth discussions about them with other people. I want to welcome you to my new project, The Path Went Chilly, where I will be discussing in-depth with my two good friends and co-hosts cases that I've covered on The Trail Went Cold. Meet my co-hosts. First one up is Jules. Hi, I'm Jules from the podcast Riddle Me That True Crime, and I have a PhD in transpersonal counseling. I'm not a psychologist or a diagnostician, so don't get too excited. But I can't wait to analyze these cases with these two amazing humans. You've already met Robin. Now meet Dr. Ashley Wellman. Hi, I'm Ashley. I have a PhD in criminology, law, and society, and I specialize in trauma victims and survivors. 
I've spent a great deal of time working with families left behind after homicides with a cold case unit based out of Florida. And I'm also a professor of criminology. I'm so excited to be chatting with two of my best friends about the cases that everyone can't seem to get enough of. We hope in doing so that we will have a clearer perspective of what may have transpired. Oftentimes, Ashley will be totally in the dark. Jules and I will be telling Ashley a story she may not know much about, so all of her reactions are genuine. We will be releasing on all major platforms April 8th. We hope you will join us as we attempt to heat up some ice-cold cases. The Pathway Chili will be available every Thursday on all major podcast platforms. 